0: Hi, and welcome to Follow's Weekly Message podcast. Thanks for joining us. We hope this message inspires you and helps you follow Jesus in your community for His glory. We hope you enjoy the message. Today, our Bible reading comes from Ephesians chapter 6, 1 to 9, but I'm actually going to start from chapter 5, verse 21, as Luke's going to mention it in a service today. Submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. Wives, submit yourselves to your own husbands as you do to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, as Christ is the head of the church, his body, which he is the saviour. Now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit to their husbands in everything. Husbands, love your wives, just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, to make her holy, For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become flesh. This is a profound mystery, but I am talking about Christ and the church. However, each one of you must also love his wife as he loves himself, and the wife must respect her husband. Children, obey your parents and the Lord, for this is right. Honour your father and mother, which is the first commandment, with a promise so that it may go well with you and that you may enjoy long life to the earth. Fathers, do not exasperate your children. Instead, bring them up in the training and instruction of the Lord. Slaves, obey your earthly master with respect and fear and with sincerity of heart, just as you would obey Christ. Obey them not only to win their favour when their eye is on you, but as slaves of Christ doing the will of God from your heart. Serve wholeheartedly, as if you were serving the Lord, not people, because you know that the Lord will reward each one of you for whatever good you do, whether they are slave or free. And masters, treat your slaves in the same way. Do not threaten them, since you know that he who is both their master and yours in heaven, and there is no favoritism with him.
1: All of us can think of times when we have an order or a lack of order in our homes. You know, there's those times when everything's going well, everyone's getting along and there's kind of like a calm and a peace right over your home. But I think we can also probably think of those times when that hasn't been the case, when the siblings are squabbling, the parents are fighting, there's relationships with tension or confusion and people are kind of walking around on eggshells. Nobody enjoys times like that. I remember one day, uh, one particular day in our household when there was complete disorder. Uh, It should have been one of the best days for our family, but it ended up being one of the worst. It was actually the day that our eldest daughter, Adele, was getting baptised. She was getting baptised at an evening service, and we were super proud of her, and we were looking forward to it. And so we had kind of like a lazy day that Sunday, but later in the afternoon, we started to get ready in order to leave. Back then, Kim used to take off her rings and her earrings and her watch overnight, and she'd leave them on the bathroom bench. Uh, Lenny, at that stage, wasn't around, and so our youngest was Annika, and she was about three years of age. And she was at that age and stage where she loved to hide things. And so when Kim went to put her rings on as we got ready for the baptism and noticed that they weren't there, the natural conclusion was that Annika had hidden them. And so Kim asked Annika where she'd put them. And to her horror, Annika pointed at the toilet. And so by the way we responded to Annika's gesture, I think she could tell that we weren't really thrilled with the answer. And so I said, Annika, did you really put them there? And I think sensing the seriousness of the situation and perhaps the impending punishment on the horizon, she said, no. And there was this huge sense of relief. And so I said, so where did you put them? And she said, "Uh, under the bed. And so we went over to the bed and we're under the bed and we're looking down there and we're looking everywhere, high and low, but we couldn't find them anywhere under the bed. And so I said, Annika, they're not there. Where are they? And she said, they're in the kitchen. And so we all went to the kitchen and we looked everywhere in the kitchen, but still no rings. I said, Annika, where are they? And she said, they're in my bedroom. So we went to her bedroom and we turned that upside down. We went to six different locations, but at the end of that, there were no rings, no watch, and no earrings. Now, I'm one of those people who absolutely hates losing stuff. I can't stand it when I can't find something that's important, uh, particularly if it's something like wedding rings. And so I could feel the frustration rising in the midst of this situation. And in a moment lacking wisdom, I said to Kim, why do you take your rings off all the time? Well, that was like pressing the elevator Uh, on tension and it went from level one up a few levels to the top level and all of a sudden both of us were increasingly frustrated with one another and particularly with what was going on and so desperate times call for desperate measures now you probably heard it said that you should never ever bribe your kids and that is my official advice to you this morning don't ever bribe your kids but sometimes who are we kidding You've got no other option. And this is one of those situations where we felt like we had no other option. And so I got Annika, and I said, Annika, if you tell daddy where mummy's rings are, you're going to get a chocolate bar. Well, her eyes lit up. And she quickly took us back to the original location, which was the toilet. And she picked up the dunny brush and she started poking it down the toilet. That was the moment that I knew we were never going to see those rings again. Kim's wedding ring, her engagement ring, her watch and her earrings all went down the toilet with one flush. That was a really difficult time. And I said to Annika, right, no chocolate for you. Get in the car. We've got to go to church. It wasn't my finest parenting moment, but considerable restraint considering the circumstances. Needless to say, the 30-minute drive to church To the baptism service was one of silence and unspoken tension. The usual order in our home had gone down the toilet with those rings. You know, over time, in different eras, lots of things change. But one thing that always remains, whichever generation you're in, is that relationships, particularly within households, can be complicated. Uh, Every generation, I think, is a little bit arrogant, and we all think that we're more sophisticated than the last generation. And that may be true when it comes to things like technology and science, but when it comes to relationships, in many ways, every generation is exactly the same. We all have good times, and we all have not such good times, in our relationships, and also in our households. And it was really no different in biblical times. In order to help with that, people in ancient times came up with what was known as household codes. About three years ago, we had a difficult season in our family where things seemed to be a little bit out of order. And so one day as a family, Kim and I and the kids sat down and we we crafted, we wrote down a set of family values, which we then printed out and we stuck on walls in different locations throughout the house. It was essentially a shared statement on the way that we wanted to treat one another in our home. Household codes in ancient times were a little bit like that, but instead of being for one individual household, they were designed to be adopted by all households. They The household codes, they didn't actually originate with the biblical writers. They were actually commonplace in the Greco-Roman world. And Aristotle is thought to be one of the earliest formulators of these codes. And they were basically a set of rules or principles that prescribed what the ideal household should look like within that culture. It was really a way of creating order. Now this week I read through some of Aristotle's codes this week. And what really stood out to me was who they were addressed to. In the Greco-Roman world, they were almost exclusively addressed to the male, who in a patriarchal society ruled over everyone in the household in a domineering way. In the CEB study Bible notes, it says this, it says, In ancient thought, the patriarch ruled his household in such a way that his wife furthered his public reputation. His children were controlled and regarded as less than fully human, and his slaves were seen as being subhuman. This was a system that served the patriarch. But as we turn to Scripture, we see something very different. In the Bible, we find household codes in Colossians, in 1 Timothy, 1 Peter, and in Ephesians 5 and 6 that we're continuing to explore this morning. And they were written in response to the household codes of the day. And what we see in each of these biblical codes is a description of what the household should look like from a Christian perspective, in contrast to the culture around them. And I think it's important to understand that, because if we simply read them for how they are, we run the risk of missing what they were. Let me say that again. If we simply read them as they are, we run the risk of missing what they were. And what they were was radically countercultural. They were upside-down household codes that describe what households should look like as a new humanity in Christ. For the original recipients of this letter in Ephesus, these biblical codes would have been obviously and starkly different to the household codes they were familiar with within their culture. They would have received this and immediately gone, Wow, this is incredible. It's not like anything we've ever seen before. It would have brought a feeling of freedom and joy, and I think it would have caused them to start to imagine what life could actually be like if their household could function like this. I think the most obvious difference in these biblical household codes is that they're not just written to the male patriarch. They're actually addressed to all the members of the household. And instead of endorsing one person as the dominant and the most important presence, it actually ensures that every single person within the household is treated with dignity. These biblical codes are built on reciprocal love, mutual submission, and respect for one another. And I think that's really important to understand. When it comes to Ephesians 5 and 6, it addresses three types of relationships husband and wife that Adam covered last week. And in today's passage, we have children and parents, and we have slaves and masters. These were all members that were commonly found within households in the ancient world. And so the guiding principle for all of these relationships is actually found back at the very start of this section in verse 21 of chapter 5, which introduces this household code. And it says this, it says, Submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. And so under this guiding principle of submission, Paul then unpacks what it looks like for husbands and wives, for children and parents, and for slaves and masters. Now, we don't need to fully revisit last week's topic of marriage other than to say that the Bible presents a magnificent vision of what marriage can be. And so let's have a quick talk about what it says to the husbands and wives. We, we heard last week that it says that uh that husbands are the head of the house and that wives are to submit to their husbands. But then it says husbands are to lay their lives down for their wives as Christ laid his life down for the church. Now, how did Christ lay his life down for the church? Well, he did it by dying on a cross. He literally died for the church. And so for all the men listening to this message today, if you need to remind your wife to respect you, Let me say that the problem is probably not with your wife. The problem is probably you. Because I don't think there's barely a woman on earth who would have trouble respecting a husband who's laying his life down for her. Because everything he does is with her best interests in mind. It's to make sure that she grows and flourishes in her life, in her giftings and in her faith. This historically over the years has been the issue with the way that some people see and have interpreted headship. For many people, it's all about who's in charge, who makes all the decisions in this house, who holds the place of power. But I believe Jesus makes it clear that if that's the way we see things, we're actually completely missing the point of discipleship and we're misunderstanding relationship from a biblical perspective. In Matthew chapter 20, you might remember James and John's mother comes to Jesus with a strange request. She asked Jesus to put her two sons on his right and on his left as he establishes his kingdom. What she's asking for is for her sons to be in the places of power. She's saying, in your kingdom, Jesus, I want my sons to be in charge. Now, in a roundabout way, Jesus basically says, Lady, you're completely missing the point. And he uses her misunderstanding as a teaching opportunity to redefine radically what life in the kingdom is like. He says this in Matthew chapter 20. He says, that, You know that the rulers of the Gentiles lord it over people, and their high officials exercise authority over them. But then in verse 26, he says these words. He says, Not so with you. Instead, this is what it looks like in the kingdom whoever wants to become great among you must be your servant, and whoever wants to be first must be your slave, just as Jesus, the Son of Man, did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. You know, Philippians chapter 2 tells us that even though he was in very nature God, Jesus made himself nothing, becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. Church, this is the pattern. This is the path he calls us to travel in every relationship of life, including our marriages. And so headship, when redefined through that definition, is not about position and power. It's about modeling sacrifice and service to your wife and children in a way that you will be the number one servant in your home, so that your family will see Jesus in and through your life. This is what makes Christian marriage so beautiful and so unique. Because let's be honest, many marriages are selfish. It's about what can I get out of this relationship. But in a Christian marriage, the wife's needs are met when the husband lays his life down for her. And the husband's life uh, needs are met when the wife lays down her life for him in submission and respect. And so both have their needs met, but not by selfishly grabbing for themselves, but rather by sacrificially giving of themselves to one another. This is what it means to submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. And if we could live this out, let me tell you, there would be no such thing as divorce or abuse or family breakdown, but in their place, we would see marriages that reflect Jesus and his relationship with us, his church. Now, last week, one of our elders was so moved by this passage of scripture that at the end of the sermon, he said to his wife, there has never been a problem with you respecting me. The issue is that I haven't loved you enough. What a challenge that is, and what a beautiful example and response that is for all of us husbands. Because there's no doubt to me that there is higher demand placed on the men in this passage than there is on the women. Women, respect your husbands. Husbands, lay down your life for your wives. You know, I think in many ways when these household codes were received by the church, it would have been really challenging for the men And at the same time, it would have been freeing for the women, the children, and the slaves. And this was really a new understanding for me as I re-looked at this passage during the week. I believe these household codes are primarily challenging the men in the patriarchal society they were immersed in. You see, women in their culture were generally submissive. Children were by and large obedient. Slaves were used to serving their masters. There's nothing revolutionary about any of that. But what was revolutionary was the instruction for the men. The men needed to change and grow in their lives. They needed to grow in the sacrificial love of their Savior by laying their lives down for the flourishing of all those around them rather than simply seeking their own desires, position and privilege. I think it's very clear in the marriage part in this passage. But as we continue into chapter 6, as we read through the instructions for parents and children and also slaves and masters, I believe we see the same dynamic in play. In their culture, where the men were seen as important, more important than everyone else, they're now being challenged not to lord it over others like the rest of the world, but to follow in the footsteps of their Saviour by laying down their position of power through sacrificially serving in love. And so let's now consider what Paul says to parents and children. At the start of chapter 6, we pick it up in verse 1. It says, Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Honour your father and mother, which is the first commandment with a promise, so that it may go well with you and that you may enjoy long life on the earth. Fathers, do not exasperate your children. Instead, bring them up in the training and instruction of the Lord. I want you to notice what, it's, what it does here. It says, Children obey your parents. That's plural. But then notice who the onus is on. Fathers don't exasperate your children. In this section, Paul moves from the marriage relationship to the relationship between parents and children with a challenge to all involved, but a particular challenge to the men. And so he starts this challenge by talking to the children. Now, direct communication with children was quite unusual in the ancient world, and it indicates a couple of things. First of all, that children would have been present in these churches that were receiving this letter. But the second thing, and the more important thing, is that it shows that in God's economy, children were not less than fully human. They were precious and valued in Christian households. The parents and children relationship, I think all of us know, can be a really joyful one. You know, some of the best moments of my life happened in my childhood and also around my own children. But at the same time, we we probably also know that this relationship can be really difficult. There can be moments where you kind of almost burst with pride, but there are moments that can also break your heart. There are times where we get it right as parents, and there are times where we can get it really wrong. There can be times where children respect their parents, and yet there can be other circumstances where they definitely don't. Like marriage, it can be complicated. And in this passage, Paul addresses both the parents and the children, but he starts by addressing the kids. And so I want to address the children watching this this morning. What is Paul's advice to you today? Well, if you forget everything else I've said, kids, I want you to remember this part. Paul's advice to you might not be easy to hear, but it's simply this. Obey your parents. I'm sitting on the couch probably right now watching this service with my kids next to me, and I hope and pray that they're listening to this. Why? Because this passage says because it's right, because it's pleasing to God. You know, we often ask questions like, what's God's will for my life? Well, here's one thing. Obey your parents. Not only is it right, but things will go well for you if you do. I think we know that that's generally true. When we do what our parents ask, there's peace and harmony. But when we don't, look out. Life doesn't go well for us. You know, I'm getting a little bit older these days, but it doesn't feel like that long ago that I was a teenager. I remember I got to a certain age, in somewhere in between 12 and 16, where I felt like I had it all worked out. It's kind of like I had this instant download, and now I knew everything about everything. And at the same time, something strange happened. It was like My parents and all the other adults in my life had their memory wiped and now they knew nothing. And I thought my parents in that season of life were so unreasonable with some of their demands. You know, it was really hard to obey. And I want to talk to you today if you're a teenager here this morning because you might feel exactly the same way right now because you've had that same experience of kind of like you've arrived. I want to let you in on a little secret today. I thought I knew everything when I was 15 years old. But as I continued to grow and mature, I realized in hindsight that I actually knew very little. And some of the advice my parents had given me, which seemed so unfair and so unreasonable at the time, was actually very wise. Because parents and other adults have actually had years of experience and wisdom that when we're teenagers, we couldn't possibly have had. And so it's important to obey our parents, but once again... Uh, This is not a one-way street. We see that there's mutuality in this relationship because parents, and primarily fathers in this passage, it says, don't exasperate your children. Now, when I prepared for this message, I must admit I felt a little bit convicted. Uh, You'd have to ask my kids, but I think I'm a pretty good dad. Not a day goes by where the kids in our household don't get a hug and a kiss, uh, whether they want one or not. Uh, I tell my kids every day that I love them. And I've done my very best to bring them up in the training and instruction of the Lord. And each of our kids follow Jesus. And I'm really eternally grateful for that. I see it as the primary and most important ministry in my life to love my wife and my kids. But despite that, I felt convicted as I looked through this passage because I think there have been times where I've been too strict. Perhaps at times I've been harsh. I've had unreasonable expectations. There's definitely been days where I've been slow to listen and quick to get angry. There's been other times where I've been slow to encourage and quick to criticize. And as a dad, I've got to own that and repent of it. And I, I don't know, I need God to help me every day on a daily basis to keep being the best dad I can be. And I'm sure I'm not the only parent here today who feels that way. If we want our kids to obey us, we need to give them reasons to trust us. That happens not by lording it over them or incessantly critic criticizing them, but through reciprocal love in our relationships. When our children obey us, it should be love responding to love. And so kids, obey your parents. But parents, nurture your kids, encourage them, build them up, support them, teach them, discipline them, but most of all, love them. Let's finish by looking at what Paul goes on to say to slaves and masters. You know, the idea of slavery in the Bible is kind of difficult for us to comprehend and understand. But it's important to understand that even though the Bible acknowledges slavery within that culture, it doesn't mean that God is endorsing it. In fact, when slavery is referred to both in the Old Testament and the New Testaments, there's, also, there's always a redemptive element when compared to the way that slaves were treated in the surrounding culture. And slaves in the New Testament, they weren't like the slaves we think of in the African slave trade. These slaves in biblical times were actually trusted members of the household. They had a roof over their head, they had food provided for them, they even enjoyed some privileges as slaves. Now the Bible, as we read it, actually stops short of slavery being abolished. But I really believe that the New Testament sowed the seeds of change that led to slavery being abolished in our world. We definitely see redemptive movement in scripture when it comes to slaves. In the Old Testament, as I said a moment ago, slaves were to be treated better by the people of God than they were in their surrounding culture. And in this passage in Ephesians, it's the same. This household code actually addresses the slave, not as somebody who is subhuman, but as a valuable person within the household. It reminds them to obey their masters with respect and sincerity of heart, just as they obey Christ. It encourages them to serve wholeheartedly, remembering that their ultimate service is not to human beings, but to Jesus himself. But in what was truly transformational, masters, once again the men, were told to treat their slaves in the same way, with respect. And so even in this relationship where there was the the most disparity of all these relationships, there was still to be reciprocal love and respect towards one another. As we continue through the New Testament, we get to the book of Philemon, and we see that the same person who wrote this letter, Paul, pleads with Philemon to not only release Onesimus as his slave, but to receive him as a precious brother in Christ. This is what I love about the gospel. It leads to incredible freedom in Christ, where no person is more valuable than anyone else, but we are all one in Christ. One of the most important verses in the whole New Testament is Galatians chapter 3, verse 28. It says there is neither Jew nor Gentile, neither slave nor free, nor is there male or female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. Let me tell you, church, that is powerful and it is revolutionary stuff. And so what's the application from all of this for us today? Well, you probably remember that our theme for 2020 is to bloom where you're planted. And the title of our Ephesians series is The Blessing in the Blooming. Well, when we first announced our theme this year, we had no idea that COVID-19 would take a grip on our world. But there's no accidents with God. Most of us have this year spent more time planted in our households than ever before. And so the question remains, are we blooming where we're planted? You know, we've just entered in Melbourne, Victoria, another six weeks of lockdown. Many people I know are really dreading it. And maybe last time we were in lockdown, it was really difficult in your home. Maybe there was friction and tension in your relationships. And maybe you're thinking it's going to to be exactly the same this time. But I actually believe this time could be different. And if it was good for you last time, maybe this time could be even better. And so I want to encourage you to look at the next six weeks as six weeks of opportunity to grow together in love. And I think today's passage actually holds the key. And so I want to encourage you as a family or as a household to look over these passages together, meditate on them, pray over them, and with God's help, live them out. Make a decision in the next six weeks to be the last to resist an apology, to be the quickest to forgive to be the most patient and kind person in your house. Make a choice to be the greatest servant and to be the most extravagant in love. Can you imagine if every member of your household did that for this lockdown period? What would it look like if wives respected their husbands, if husbands sacrificially loved their wives, if kids obeyed their parents and parents devoted themselves to loving and investing time into their kids? What would it look like if every member In every household was appreciated, valued, and loved. Well, I think it would be a little glimpse of the kingdom of God right here in our neighborhoods. We could bloom right here where we've been planted, and as we do, we will experience the blessing in the blooming. We're going to bow our heads in a moment. and I'm going to pray for you, uh, whatever your household situation is, that in the next six weeks and beyond, well, you can see something different happen in your house as you apply the truths of Scripture. We don't want to be just hearers of the Word, but we want to be doers of it. And so let's bow our heads and we're going to close in prayer. Dear Lord, we just want to thank you so much for your Word that it's so powerful and it's so challenging. And we thank you, Lord, that your Word is, is convicting at times and it really causes us to think and reflect on our own lives and the things that we need your help to change. Lord, as we consider what it looks like to be in a healthy household according to Scripture, Lord, I pray that you'd help us to look at our own homes, for the husbands here and the wives here. Lord, I pray that you would create space for them in the next few weeks to really sit down and to talk about where they're at in their relationship. I pray for the relationships between the parents and the children, that there would be real Um, powerful and significant moments as they invest in one another in this reciprocal love that Scripture points us to. And I pray for those that live in households with other people that they would be able to model a way of living that would point people to you. Lord Jesus, we thank you that you're the one that deserves all the glory and all the honor and the titles and the position, and yet you are willing to make yourself nothing. You're willing to lay down your life for us. Lord, I pray that you would help us through the power of your Holy Spirit every day to follow in your footsteps, not to scramble for position and power, but to lay our lives down afresh every day and to live our lives for the benefit of your glory and for the benefit of other people around us. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I hope you're encouraged and challenged by that. And this week, as you go, I'll be praying that each of us can apply what we've learned from Ephesians chapter 5 and 6 today.
0: Thanks for tuning in to Follow Online. To stay updated, go to follow.church. As the people of God, let's stay connected and follow the words of Jesus to love one another.